0: We're co-ops at the core. River Street Networks is a doing business as name, it's a brand, but our culture has
1: been the co-op world. This is episode 342 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local self reliance I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Last week, Christopher and our research associate, Katie Keenbaum, were in North Carolina on a speaking tour to meet with people in the communities of Albemarle, Fuquay, Varina, and Jacksonville. You can read about the community meetings and even watch video from the Jacksonville event at muninetworks.org. While they were there, Christopher had the chance to sit down and talk with Greg Coltrane from River Street Networks. River Street Networks began as an extension of Wilkes Communications. Over the past few years, the cooperative began acquiring smaller companies all over the state as they began to implement their vision of bringing high-quality Internet access to rural communities across North Carolina. This past fall, the cooperative merged with Tri-County Telephone Membership, another cooperative, greatly expanding the reach of River Street. Greg and Christopher talk about River Street's plans to bring fiber-to-the-home connectivity to as much of rural North Carolina as possible. They also get into some of the practicalities, such as working with local electric cooperatives and with local governments to help expedite progress and lower costs. Learn more about the cooperative at MyRiverStreet.net. Now here's Christopher with Greg Coltrane from River Street Networks.
2: Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, doing another live interview in North Carolina today from Jacksonville, North Carolina on the coast by the Marine Base with Greg Coltrane from... River Street Networks. <laughs> I'm just slowly parsing through that to remind myself, you are the VP of Business Development. Yes, that's correct. Yes. <laughs> because you have a couple of different titles, or you have, and I know that, that you were very involved with uh, with a cooperative that has uh, since joined River Street Networks. But let's start there with the past and talk a little bit about uh, tri-county, um, Tri-County Broadband? Yes, that's correct. All yes. right. Yeah, Tri-County Broadband was formed
0: 67 years ago. Uh, we were formed out of Tideland EMC, which is actually was called Woodstock Electric at the time. Uh, they used USDA funds to build a, f- a
2: telephone company in an area that the incumbents didn't want to serve. And just to jump in for real quick second EMC is... Electric Membership Cooperative. Right. Yes. That's what they're called in the Carolinas. For that's right. Tell.
0: That's right. Yeah. So um, that's kind of where we got started from the beginning. Uh, we put in phone service um, over... Several years, we invested in some TV and video product to serve rural parts of Beaufort-Hyde and Washington counties in eastern North Carolina. And then, uh, you know, over the last few years, uh, we've morphed into really a broadband company. And uh, so a few years ago, um, I was having some conversations with a friend in the industry who was running a phone company and a broadband company in the western part of North Carolina called Wilkes Communications, and that was Eric Kramer.
2: Right, a former guest of our show, and we'll link to that in the in the show page so people can go back if they haven't heard that. But it's a it's an exciting interview. I, I really enjoyed talking with him about he's, that. He's really good at telling stories, and he uh, is. We look forward to having him on again, too, for sure. Uh, but we just started having some candid
0: conversations about the industry, where things were going. We always navigated to each other when we would go to meetings. Um, uh, we we teamed we tended to have some of the same visions and. Uh, and that just naturally took us to discussing partnerships, which later uh, turned into a full-blown merger. So, in August of this past year, uh, we merged uh, Tri County
2: Broadband uh, into Wilkes Communications. And before the merger, Tri County Broadband—about how many? How, you know, what was their your service territory like in terms of square miles, number of customers, that sort of yeah, thing? Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, to give you some perspective, we started overbuilding the entire network with fiber, and that was about three hundred and fifty-five miles. Of fiber that we laid in the ground, we served roughly 2,900 to close to 3,000 customers at the time, and um, and we've passed all of those customers now, so they all have fiber to the home. And how do you how how are you able to do that? I mean, how how did the financing work? Well, we've traditionally always borrowed money through the United States Department of Agriculture. They have a group called the Rural Utility Service, Mm -hmm. uh, division of the Agricultural Department, and most of the TMCs across the country, when they looked at getting started in the beginning, borrowed, and, and the interest rates were great, so we just continued to do so. But uh, when the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act was coming around, uh, there was monies placed in there for broadband infrastructure growth across the country, and we decided to bid in that uh, grant-loan process, mm-hmm. and we rewarded a 75-25 um, grant-loan combination. So we had to pay back uh, 25% of it. Um, but It was really helpful for our membership and for our community. Something of uh, this nature wouldn't have ever happened without that.
2: And so when you were getting the straight loans before the stimulus dollars were around, were you having to go into the more dense areas then? Um, Is that how you had to structure it? Prior to the broadband loan, you know, we were trying to get closer to customers
0: with electronics because we were working on old copper networks. And the only way that you could get faster broadband to them was get closer to them. And so we would build a five-year plan, uh, do a five-year performa, and we would forecast that into really an engineering model. And we would sit down and decide what we were going to do for the next five years. And in turn, we would borrow the money from RUS, and we would draw down funds Mm -hmm. um, as needed to pay for the project. And then, of course, we paid that back at a low interest rate over many years.
2: Now, are your operating costs much lower in areas where you're operating on the fiber now as opposed to when you were operating on the copper? Yes, actually they are. And um, Some
0: statistics show that um, fiber uses 60% less electricity uh, to manage the customers. We also have a whole lot less trouble, uh, repeat trouble calls um, for fiber to the home customers. Um, it's really just a resilient service.
2: Um, it, it's remarkable. It's almost uh, magical how it works. (laughs) Well, that's one of the things I I feel like people don't always appreciate when they're talking about how fiber costs so much we can't get it to all the rural areas is that by not using fiber we may be fooling ourselves because of the higher operating costs that may be involved even as we're delivering an inferior product. That's true. Uh, The problem is is that you've got this
0: capital outlay that you put out here in this network. And even though it makes sense to take it and trade it in for something newer, uh, the cost associated with putting that fiber in is still real cost. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you upgrade customers to a superior network that's by far superior to what they've had, um, which is really kind of laying the ground floor for years to come, but you're not increasing any revenue stream. And so it's a it's a bit of a um, juggernaut, if you will. Because you go and you spend um, anywhere from 30000 to $50,000 a mile, depending on the municipalities that you're having to work around or mm-hmm. whether you're going through rough terrain like mountains or rock, stuff like that, um, uh, to serve only a few customers, six or seven customers per mile. So it makes it really complicated. And then you're not making any additional revenue when you switch them over
2: to this product. Right. When you're working with the in areas where the electric membership uh, corporation where they are um where they have the electricity, are you going on the poles? Are you burying? Is there a combination well in certain parts of our
0: network where the earth is just not very penetrable, uh, we will utilize poles and hang on the poles. Um, for the most part, we like to put it in the ground uh, because it's a little safer
2: there. We just have to worry about backhoes and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, but I mean, we, this is an area of the country where hurricanes, uh, when they hit, they hit you pretty much head on. They don't slow down a whole correct. lot. Correct. On the
0: eastern part of the state, we've, we've taken a beating over the years mm-hmm. with that. But um, we've had a lot of collaboration with the EMCs. Uh, for many years, if they were going out to do locates or stuff like that, uh, before we had the state 811 locating program, uh, we would really help each other by locating things uh, to prevent from hitting each other's stuff. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when they would open a trench, uh, they would let us lay in there with them. Uh, we've just always had a real amicable uh, relationship with them.
2: Wow, well, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. The reason I was asking that is, and this is, um, I want to, we're going to pivot to River Street Networks in a second, which is very exciting, the, the latest news. But um, one of the things we sometimes hear from uh, electric cooperatives around the nation is, well, we'd like to do broadband, but our poles just can't support it. They're worried about ice load and things like that. Um, is that something that you've run into? Is that why you prefer to be underground or is that? I have to tell you sometimes I think it's just an excuse because they really don't want to go into it and they're looking for a reason not to.
0: Well, I mean, obviously, if you have ice on lines, that's going to tear them down. It's going to be a lot more trouble if somebody else's facilities are in your way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that could be kind of thrown the other way towards us. We we would be trying to repair stuff, and they could be in our way. But uh, we've not really noticed that. Um, most of the co-ops that we've, we've had to deal with where we've had pole attachments have been fairly easy to work with. Um, And so I can't say that we've had any huge complaints there.
2: Okay. That's good to hear uh, because every region has its own peculiarities. It is. And, you know, if you go out there and get on the Internet and start
0: reading, you'll notice that not all co-ops play well together. They've got different politics going (laughs) on. But uh, we've been really blessed. We've been thankful to have Mm -hmm. the relationships in North Carolina
2: um, and they seem to be getting even better. Well, and in Virginia too, which yes. leads us to our next announcement, yeah. which is that you combining in August was part of a much larger um, kind of unveiling. In connection with the Connect America Fund uh, auction, um, which, which again, I would say if people are interested in that, um, I did a podcast on that back in September with John Chambers. Um, it's just a very exciting auction. You were a tremendous winner of it. If you want to outline the plan of what's going on with River Street Networks first, and sure, then we'll dig sure. into some of the specifics. So,
0: you know, the, the merger between uh, Wilkes Communications and Tri-County was kind of a strategic plan that fell hand-in-hand hand with some of the other acquisitions that we made across the state. And um, so we were able to combine the two co-ops, but we also uh, purchased LRB Telephone Company in Ellerby, North Carolina. Uh, we purchased three TDS properties um, in, in 2014, uh, Barnardsville Telephone, Saluda Mountain Telephone, and Fairbluff, for Service Telephone in the Fairbluff area. And these are telephone companies
2: that did not have fiber?
0: These are telephone companies that were really kind of left... Um, kind of out there to, to not have any opportunity for fiber. Mm-hmm. Um, we acquired them with the hope and the desire to, to receive some grant funds or, uh, utilize CAF funding, um, and, and a lot of our own capital to go in there and rebuild those, those, um, those networks. And so some of those things have already started underway. Uh, we've ran into some hiccups in a few areas, um, you know, it's it can be a slow go. Uh, we find that the more that we can get local groups to have some skin in the game, if we can have partners that come to the table that mm-hmm. actually help facilitate the process, even if it's something as simple as working with DOT to make sure that we don't have a lot of hurdles to jump through and cost. Um, right, that, Department those of Transit. Transportation are, are helpful. Yes, and so so we acquired these companies. Uh, we we also um, reached out to uh, a telephone company in... Uh, Virginia in Pennsylvania County and uh, People's Mutual Telephone Company and we were able to acquire that through uh, Consolidated which was the owning company for that and so we've added that to the family of River Street Networks. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a, a company in Danville uh, in Pennsylvania
2: County as well. We've actually, we've talked with Jason Gray many times over the years, followed Danville, uh, an early open access pioneer and Gamewood, the the company that had operated on their network, really, uh, doing a, a tremendous service for local businesses there. Um, there yeah. are now river street networks, right? Yeah, that, that open access network in Danville is really a cool
0: thing. Um, and our, our property Gamewood Technologies has been selling, Uh, broadband service on that to customers uh, for quite a while now. Mm -hmm. Um, We also have the means to do security and home surveillance. Uh, We do hosted voice telephone systems, and that's basically phone systems that work over the Internet, um, and it's a lot easier than the old-school way of doing hosted phone systems in business offices. Many more features. Many more features and uh, flexibility. But uh, we've been doing that um, for some time. And we also have a relationship with uh, King and Queen County, Uh, which is in kind of the northern part of Virginia uh, as you're heading towards D.C. Very unique model there. So uh, they're basically opening. uh, They have an open uh, wireless um, network there that they're selling, that the county's selling. We're managing it for them. Uh, We helped them construct and build the towers and and facilitate the APs, on the the access points on the towers. Mm -hmm. Um, And we do the maintenance and manage and bill for that. And uh, it's just a great partnership. It works well with them. Um, But all of these were strategic acquisitions to give us expertise and experience in a lot of different things so that we can basically funnel that back through um, our machine and our processes and come up with a good conceptual idea of how we can reach these rural areas that nobody else wants to go to. And so if you've got all these ideas and you've got all these people that are doing these things, it makes it a lot easier to bring everybody to the table and say, hey, look, we've got a real complicated area. It's very rural. We've got the following vertical assets. We've got mm-hmm. the following fiber assets. Now let's figure out how we can get connected to them and then we can serve those areas, which is, takes us to our next step of our exciting process, which is a partnership with the North Carolina Electric membership cooperatives.
2: Right. And so there's, there's like about 26 of them and they cover the majority of territory of North Carolina. So there's a lot of reach there.
0: They do, and they're they're rural, and they also are co-ops, mm-hmm. and we're co-ops at the core. River Street Networks is a is a doing business as name. It's a brand, but our our culture has been the co-op world. And and if I could explain that to your listeners a little bit better, mm-hmm. if you're a co-op, you're owned by your membership. So, if you make money at the end of the year, you pay it back in dividends to your members. Or you spend it in capital expenditures to grow the network even more. Sure. And so, you know, one of the things that we've tried to do is to take the efforts that we've had and spread them out and share that in a way to reach more people that are underserved, and it's worked well for us. That's the same thing that the the EMCs have done from a power standpoint. Mm-hmm. And so we had a, a kind of a symbiotic relationship with them. So as we started talking further with them, uh, it made too much sense for us not to talk further about how we could share assets, share resources, share knowledge. Um, We have a lot of experience. Um, We have about 140 employees and... uh and so we can bring resources to the table to have a network operations center, to have technical support, to have full blown engineering. Uh, we have
2: a, a production studio. We have the ability to tell the story. Yeah, in fact, you you brought your production studio to us in a limited extent in Abemaral. Absolutely, uh, two nights ago as we're recording this. Great. And folks. That video is going to be V up thanks to you and that's, and Adam. <laughs> Adam right. <and> Adam <laughs> says that he travels all over the place. Uh, you know, doing productions like that.
0: Yeah, they're excellent. Uh, the team at Um, at Wilkes and River Street is by far the best. I've I've never had uh, such enjoyment as getting to know these people and seeing the passion
2: it runs throughout the company. It's great. So let's talk a little bit about North Carolina then. So one of the things that, uh, you know, I know that you've talked about is that the cities and counties are are a bit limited in how they can work with you. And so, you know, i wonder if you can tell us, tell me a little bit about what you'd like to see in terms of the cities and counties having authority to partner. Yeah, there's a a bit of a scare tactic out there that
0: munis and um, counties are wanting to get into the broadband business. And, um, you know, I guess that's rightfully so. Some some have been more progressive than others. Um, Our conversations with most of the municipalities and counties in North Carolina, we have found they just want to be a facilitator and trying to help make it happen. So there's room for some change in the law. Uh, there's room for us to re-examine what's available. And if there are assets that can be utilized for a company to come in and, and lease those assets mm-hmm. so that they can reach further out into the community, it really kind of helps cut down on the substantial cost. I mean, it's a heavy lift to come into these communities and replow and re-construct re, um, fiber uh, throughout very small rural areas. and And so if you can use the assets that are already in place uh, to connect to, to get closer to those
2: customers, it really cuts the cost down substantially. So let's talk about that briefly. If you... Um, could if you could you know <laughs> I was just thinking of the the ants with the fungus that takes over their brains. <laughs> like, if you could take over the the county and the county had full upper uh, full authority to do whatever it wanted, uh, would you prefer dark fiber leases or would you prefer just conduit where you could do whatever you wanted with it? Obviously, if the fiber's there, a dark fiber lease would be better because you wouldn't have that additional cost
0: to put the fiber in. You could set up an agreement where you lease uh, per mile of fiber mm-hmm. uh, through that town or through that county. Uh, that would be the best. But, I mean, if there's
2: conduit there, that's also a huge savings. Well, the reason the reason I ask is because sometimes I've heard that you know, ISPs think, oh, I'd like to lease dark fiber. But... Um, if there's 10 strands available or something, I mean, what kind of strands do you need a lot of strands available for the way you build them? Or do you just adapt to whatever you have available? Well, we, I mean, we
0: try to be very nimble and adapt to whatever's available. However, we can do pretty much what we need to do um, with two strands mm-hmm. um, of fiber, especially if there's some kind of a ring architecture. That's not always a real world scheduled approach because there's not always rings out there so mm-hmm. that you've got redundant protection in a ring. You know, we make the best with whatever is available. Sure. It just takes a bunch of people uh, to kind of look outside the box and say, hey, I like the way you think. Uh, We've got these assets here. We've got a a quadrant of our community over here that's completely unreached and unserved, and we've got these assets here. It seems um, wrong not to say from a political standpoint, no, they can't be allowed to use that uh, when it would offer relief
2: in a hurry. So you've been, these companies that that, that River Street has bought, they're spread all over the state. I feel like you've had a sense of all the different areas of North Carolina. Are we going to be able to get fiber out to everyone eventually? I think with the smart folks in North
0: Carolina, we can do that. I mean, but it takes it takes our politicians making some changes. It takes people thinking outside the box. It takes everybody coming together in the room. Mm-hmm. One of the talking points I used in one of our sessions was uh, creating broadband subcommittees within counties, mm-hmm. getting that grassroots approach, having the county commissioners establish a lead person and saying, "Hey, go out in the community, find some anchor people." And let's get the conversation rolling. Y'all start having meetings and start making recommendations to the commissioners, and we'll listen. Mm -hmm. That's a great first step. And we've had the opportunity to work with some counties where we come in, and they have a, a broadband subcommittee. Uh, Warren County in North Carolina had a, a great broadband subcommittee. Really, really cool people. Great people thinking outside of the box. Uh, we were able to engage with them as a provider and find out what the desires of the community was, and then put together a plan and bring it before the county commissioners. And so, and that's what we're finding it seems to be a very good, um, good, good avenue to work great. through the
2: counties. Yeah, I love that you've brought that up in each of our meetings because that's one of the things I wanted to happen. and I didn't fit it into my remarks, but (laughs) I felt like you were just cleaning up for me. No,
0: no problem at all. No
2: problem. Well, thank you, Greg, for coming on the show. And and, uh, I've been wanting to get you on here since I met you in Durham last year. Yeah. And it's it's a pleasure to have spent three nights with you.
1: That was Christopher and Greg Coltrane from River Street Networks talking at the recent Let's Connect meetings in North Carolina. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadband bits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at community nets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power, and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. Don't miss out on our original research from all our initiatives. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org, and while you're there, please take a moment to donate. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle licensed to Creative Commons, and thank you for listening to Episode 342 of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast.